If you don't have a Bible, uh, we invite you to use the Pew Bible in front of you. Philippians is where we'll be, chapter 1, starting in verses 3 through 11. I believe that'll be page 980 in the Pew Bible, New Testament book of Philippians. And uh, as you're turning there, we are um, in this series called White Picket Fences, ending this series really about parenting and, um, and understanding our role as parents. But it's also been for all of us about how we relate to God as our father, as he parents us. Amen. And, um, and so what, what, what is kind of um, taken from is this uh, verse in Ephesians chapter six, verse four, where it gives us these three things that we need to be doing. And kind of the illustration we've used is a little plant illustration is that God has given us children to raise as if they were a plant. And we're responsible for putting some things and pouring some things into them. But then listen to me now, that plant is responsible for what it becomes. And um, because a lot of us live and many people have lived underneath the condemnation, underneath the weight as parents and even grandparents of, man, am I going to mess up a kid? Am I going to totally ruin their lives? Or am I doing enough? And we jump through all these hoops and we're working hard and all these sorts of things. There can be so much pressure upon parents to be perfect. And what we said is, listen, those children have a job. We have a role. We have a, a, a calling to fulfill as parents and grandparents, even as single people, as we uh, encourage young people and children around us. We have a role to play. And we're accountable to God for that role. And that's it. We're not accountable for someone else's actions. Amen. Many p- parents and, and grandparents are wearing the guilt of, oh, man, if I could have, if I would have done this differently and go back in time. And so that's actually what we're going to talk about today. Right. Is what happens when we just mess up? Right. What happens when we just flunk? And, uh, and that's the question before us. When we flunk as parents, I know we've got some kids and some teenagers here. What happens when we mess up, when we just flunk and totally blow it? And, um, and so uh, I believe we've got a picture there, Corey, of uh, those plant pictures. I want to go back through those. Um, and so here are the three things from Ephesians 6, 4, where it talks about bring up your children and the, uh, the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So the first one is environment. Is that that's the soil in our homes and our conversation and our love and our touch and time. That's like the soil. And so that's what we're responsible. We're responsible for the soil that is in our home life for the atmosphere. And by the way, I told this to our Wednesday night class because we're doing a Wednesday night class where we get to talk through this stuff with parents. Hey, listen, um, atmosphere and habits are two different things. You know what I'm talking about? The atmosphere in your home can change right away because we as adults control the atmosphere. Amen. The atmosphere can change right away. But habits, how many know habits took time to build? And those habits are going to take time to go away. And so your habits, children's habits, <laughs> spouse's habits, those things take a while. And so the atmosphere can change right away, but habits take a while. So that's the first thing from Ephesians 6, uh, 4. And then the second thing is, we'll go to that next picture there, is that they need discipline. And that kind of becomes the structure. Kids need structure. They need bedtimes. They need mealtimes. Little, little babies, they, they need time to take a nap. And it's okay because without that structure, without discipline, and discipline is what keeps us Moving forward, kids need to be told no. No is not a bad word. It's okay to tell them no. It's okay to lovingly discipline them. But again, it's lovingly. It's not crazy like you see people on TV like chasing like you. You get over here. I told you that. I'm going to whip you and chasing somebody around. And, you, you know, that sort of crazy mess, right? That's demonic, all right? And um, just as demonic as letting your kid do whatever you want. 
or whatever they want. And so neither one of those are biblical. Discipline is, is what they need. That's the structure. That builds in them security. And then the third piece that we talked about last week is this need for significance. And that's really the teaching. And what are we teaching kids? We give them a picture of, of our awesome God, of how great God is. And we give them the teaching of the gospel. And not rules, because rules cannot build their significance. We don't build their significance on their athletic achievements or their academic achievements. And by the way, none of those are wrong to achieve academically or athletically. But that is not what our teaching is centered and focused on. We're teaching our kids the gospel and we're pouring into them how great God is, how uh, foolish and unwise we were as sinners and how we rebelled against God. And then what a great redeemer that, that God has sent, a, a savior, a Messiah to rescue us. And when we fail, he is the one that comes through for us. And that's really how we're going to uh, tail end today. So what do we do when we mess up? Because kids do some crazy things, right? Kids do some crazy things. And um, just this week, uh, we had a dresser fall, a large dresser, right? And um, man, it scared everybody in my house because arm wall dresser is about almost as tall as me, about to my chin. And, um, and my wife heard a loud crash, boom, and heard children screaming. And she thought, oh my gosh, somebody died, right? Nobody died, praise God. We experienced a little miracle, not a little miracle, a real miracle, big miracle. And, um, and all our children were safe, but somebody had tried to climb up, you know, and, and reach something and just thought this was a good idea. And so kids do all kinds of things. They say all kinds of things. They, they say, what is God's last name? They ask you those kind of questions, right? Does God have a dog? You know? If, if you melt dry ice, can you swim in it and get wet? And you're thinking, I, I, I don't. I don't know. Like how, where do you, even? what do you do all day to think about these things? Sometimes we wonder as parents, there was a, a conversation between a dad and, and his son. The son was in third grade and he was doing, he was in trouble because he had been flunking the third grade. His grades were bad. And he said, son, why are your grades so bad? What's going on? He says, dad, it's obvious. My teacher, she has a college education. Of course, I'm going to look moronic compared to her. That's why I'm doing so bad. It's the teacher. It's because she's so smart. I'm going to look so foolish compared to her. And his dad was like, that's not going to cut it, son. Another conversation between dad and son as they were talking about stuff. And he was trying to get his son to stop being lazy and, you know, playing so many video games and not wanting to do his schoolwork and all this sort of stuff, right? And he said, son, when Abe Lincoln was your age, he was walking to school barefoot, uphill, both ways. He worked two and three jobs. He was writing books. What is your excuse, son? And the son just looked at me and said, Dad, when Abe Lincoln was your age, he was the president of the United States. <laughs> and then I would imagine what happened right after that was one of those parent mess-up things because I imagine the dad did not react filled with the Holy Spirit. But he reacted filled with his flesh and, uh, and, and um, might have extended not the hand of fellowship, but a different hand there. And so what, what, what happens when we just blow it, right? Because we look at this picture of, man, this environment of loving touch and time and all this sort of stuff and discipline. And, and man, I got to discipline my kids and, and, and I cannot let them disobey. And I, I need to be consistent at every time they, they, they don't obey 
you know, man, I got to be consistent. I got to be loving and calm and not irritated and yelling. And, and man, I got to teach them the gospel. And this is hard. And how am I teaching them? And using everyday moments and teaching them how big and how glorious and awesome our God is. And man, what happens when I just, I fly off the handle, right? What happens when I yell and scream and I get upset? What happens when they pluck my everlast nerve? You know, and it's like, Pastor, it sounds so easy on stage, but I'm letting you know it's just as difficult for me as it is for you. And um, I, 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 somebody, I was talking last week. I shared the message. I said some things at a volleyball game that I shouldn't have said that my eight-year-old repeated after me, and everybody comes in and said, what would you say, Pastor? They all wanted to know. And um, so that's between me and the Lord, all right? So you just mind your own business. Let's get <laughs> um, but, but then, you know, just uh, this past week, there was just struggle after struggle after my kids. And I was telling the parenting class on Wednesday nights that um, I got frustrated with my kids because um, they just like to rearrange furniture. They think the house belongs to them. And, and they just want to take things from one room to another room and, and pick up things here and there. And, and like pieces of furniture, not just toys, so it's not just toys spread around everywhere. It's pieces of furniture that have been taken. And so I had come back early from a run. Like, this is pre-7 o'clock, okay? And I got kids up. I've come back from a run, and I, I look at them. I'm like, something's not right. What? Where did this come from? And there are two, like, little end tables, for lack of a better Two end tables now out in the middle of the dining room with toys on them. And I'm like, it's, it's barely 7 o'clock. What is, because they weren't here when I left. What has happened? And um and then I hear kids in the back room and they're doing all this sort of stuff and um uh, and then they're they're just making a trail of mess and um and I'm just I'm trying not to get frustrated because I'm like somebody's gonna step up this my wife's gonna wake up and the whole house is gonna be turned upside down and this and then I'm just starting to play it in my mind right and I'm just getting heated and heated and I'm like why are you up so early what is the problem you know and then I go to the door and they're in uh, the room and I can hear them and here's the crazy part they're actually playing nicely right. They're actually getting along. They're not watching TV. They're not playing on their Kindles. They are playing restaurant. They're playing restaurant. They got, uh, and actually because we went out, and so they're mimicking the waitress, and they got these, they got little pads, and they're taking stuff, and they're playing rest. It's a beautiful scene. But I'm ticked. I'm just upset. Like, my kids are really doing creative play. They're getting along. I have no justifiable reason to be upset with them other than they're messing up my routine in the morning and they're in my way and I'm getting frustrated. And the temptation was to yell at them and be like, get this stuff out of the living room. What is wrong with you? But God is just speaking to me. He's like, hey, you got to preach on parenting anyway, so you better behave this week. And so, uh, you know, this conviction is there. And I was like, I got to have at least one good story to tell. Um, and, uh, you know, so I'm like, all right, don't get upset with them. Just let it be, you know, because they just made this little genius cute thing. And it was so encouraging, but because it was ruining my plans, because it was in my way, I was tempted to get frustrated. And I have gotten frustrated many, many a times. And I have yelled at my kids and I have disciplined them in anger and not in love. And I have gotten lazy and said, I don't want to get up and parent you right now. Quit arguing. I don't want to hear another sound. Otherwise, it's over. All you guys will be put out on the curb for some other family. And, uh, you know, I've, you know, and so what do we do when we mess up? And so we we the ultimate answer is we continue to run to Jesus. Right. We continue to go to a God who forgives us. So uh, a couple of points I want us to write down. This is the first point. 
that you could write down is this, is that change is a process that requires a patient, loving parent. Change is a process that requires a patient, loving parent. Process would be the key word. And then we're going to spend some time reading our scripture and going back through this. So I apologize to Corey in the back. I, I went uh, oblong there, my friend. Um, and so change is a process, meaning it takes time and it requires a patient, loving parent. And so as you write that down, we're going to look at our text this morning in Philippians. That's where I was originally going in, um, in Philippians chapter one. And, um, and, and before we even turn there, I just want you to know this. This is the Apostle Paul writing to a church in a place called Philippi. He's writing to this church and this church is a lot like his spiritual children. They're a lot like his children. He loves this church. He's nurtured this church. He's cared for this church. And although the Apostle Paul himself doesn't have any biological children in the faith, these are his children. And, and, and he's going to pray for them. And he's going to send them this letter. And I want you to listen to the heart of the Apostle Paul as he writes this letter to his children and, and see if it matches up with your heart. And I'll see if it matches up with my heart. Right? Let's read it, beginning in verse 3. So we're going to read the whole text. There we go. It says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Who's he talking about there? He's talking about the church there. Could you say that about your children? I thank my God in all my remembrance. Some are saying, yeah, yeah, I thank God for my children all the time, my grandchildren all the time. But notice the word there, in all my remembrance of you. You mean to tell me you never have a memory that starts turning sour, right? And you start thinking about what they did and, uh, you know, how that gets going there in your mind can just keep going. In all my all the memories that I have, I'm thanking God. That time when they talked back to you, that time when they broke your heart. I know some of us have older children that maybe you would call prodigals, those who have walked away uh, from a relationship with you, those who have walked away from a relationship with God and they break your heart and you never thought. You, 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 you're holding a little baby in your arms. You took them to their first day of school, and you're so proud of them. And you hold these moments you thought you would have with your child, but you never thought you would have that moment when you had to take your child to rehab, right? That's, that's not the moment many of us picture, but many of us have walked through that. And I know those situations are breaking many of our hearts. And listen to what he says. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Verse 4. Always in every, 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 how many? Every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with what? Joy. Every prayer when I'm praying for my spiritual children, when I'm praying for my children, is filled with joy. Right. No, we have had some tear-filled prayers. I have had some tear-filled prayers. God, please. Speak to my children. God, please, I'm begging you, it has not always been filled with joy. He says this, verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Verse 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you. What way does he feel about them? What, what have you gathered already? How does he feel about them? Good. I'm thanking God for you. I'm, I'm encouraged. And he says, it's right for me to feel this way about you. Why? Because I hold you in my what? In my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace. That's why. Both in my imprisonment and my defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul had been in prison in this church, had 
uh, helped him there. There are a number of scenarios that uh, happened uh, in the book of Acts that we won't go into. And it says this, verse 8, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent. How many of you know that's what you're praying for your children so they can approve what is excellent? And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray as we read God's word. Father, this is your word, and I thank you that we're not here to to listen to a preacher, but we're here, God, for you. We're here to have your word speak to our hearts, God, to encourage us, to challenge us. So as we gather around your word, Father, we worship you with our minds now. We give you our attention, Jesus. We surrender our minds to you. And, and I just ask that as you're there in your seat, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, you just have a conversation with God and say, Lord, right there in the quietness of your heart, just say something like this to him. Lord, speak to me today. Lord, speak to me today. For I intend to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so... As we look at this text here, and, uh, and, and Corey, we can go back to that first point, is that change is a process that requires a patient and loving parent. And the reality is, when kids disobey and when our kids mess up, we're not quite so patient and loving and understanding this is a process, right? We were like, I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times, right? Don't leave your shoes here. Don't leave the Legos here. I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times, don't hit your sister, right? We go through those sorts of things. Right? If I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times, and we stress out about this. And again, a patient, it's a process. Parenting is a process, meaning it takes what? It takes time. And so our goal is to realize this is a little person, this is a little human being here, and they are going to take some time. And you know what? It will take over a thousand times. And the more we're okay with that, and the more we understand with the process mentality, and hey, take this and apply this to your coworkers, or to your spouse, or to your roommates. They're an unfinished person in the process of changing. And when you just understand they're a process, they're a work in progress, you start losing the, the frustration that you got to fix them, right? How many marriages and relationships are struggling because I'm trying to fix that person that I live with and they just won't listen to me for some reason. And then I get upset because they won't listen to me. And so then I manipulate, I finagle, I do what I can do. I give them the cold shoulder. I, I do all these things. I take things away. I, I get a separate bank account. I do all these things in order to make another person be controlled, right? Because I realize and I fail to realize that they are in the process of being changed. It requires patience. On my behalf, look again with me back at the text. And again, let's see how the Apostle Paul feels, right? Again, look at verses 4 through 5. Again, in verse 3, he's saying, I thank my God and, and all my words for you always, verse 4, in every prayer of mine, for, for all making my prayer with what? Joy. So he's filled with joy as he's thinking about them because of your partnership in the gospel from this day until now. And then look at verse 7 with me, verses 7 through 11. It is right for me to feel this way because I hold you where? In my heart, I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in defense and confirmation of the gospel. And then he says this, verse 8, 
For God is my witness how I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. How is this possible? How is the Apostle Paul able to do this? And the church at Philippi, like a lot of the churches, had some issues. He had to continue to write them. In fact, later on in this letter, he's going to write to them about humility. He's going to write to them about some other uh, issues that they're facing. Um, and there's a lot of encouragement here, but there were issues he had to deal with. So he had to discipline the church at Philippi um, and, uh, and deal with some stuff. But he still had this yearning. He still had this affection. He still had this patience with them. And I think really the key verse here is this. How, how could Paul do this? How could he be so patient? How could it be so yearning for them with the affection of Christ, even though they weren't perfect, even though they were slow to learn, right? I believe the key verse is in verse 6, right? This is what he says. Look at verse 6. This is really the key of this passage here. This is what lets him off the hook. And I am sure of this. I am sure of this. How's he feeling about it? He's sure. I'm sure of this. I know this. I know this is a guarantee that he, who's that he? That's God. He who began a good work in you. He who began a good work in you will do what with it? Will bring it to completion tomorrow. Next Friday. No. At the day of Jesus Christ. What's that mean? We got two options, right? That means when God calls that person home, that is the day they will be made complete and perfected. Or when Jesus comes back for his bride, we will be made complete and perfect. But until that day, we are a work in progress, right? But we get so frustrated with people, right? Because we're like, why can't you get this? Why? We expect change to happen overnight. Let me give you a couple of theological words here. The first word we actually sung about earlier is called justification. Reach over and touch your neighbor and tell them justification. Justification. And then you can tell them, I don't know what it means either. It's okay. Right? Justification. Justification. What does this word justification means? This is what happens at the moment someone becomes a believer. They are justified in God's side, meaning they are set right. Their slate has been wiped clean. All they've ever uh, done wrong is wiped away. A big giant eraser. Wiped everything away. Justify. One person said it like this. It's just as if I'd never sinned. Justify. So I'm set right in God's sight. Justification. That's what it's called. We were singing that song. Rising ye justified. Right? Can I sing it again? Can I? You want to come play the guitar, Pastor Caleb? Um, Freely. All right. No, I won't sing anymore. Is that too high? It's too high? You got to come lower. Freely forever. <clears throat> And uh, so justified, justified, everything has been set right in the relationship with God. He accepts us. And so we're made clean. We're given the robes of Christ. We're given his righteous robes to wear. And he looks at us just as if I'd never said. Every time Jesus looks at me or you or any believer, he sees perfection. But that's not what's happening on a Monday and a Tuesday and a Sunday, right? I still do some wrong stuff. I still have sin in me that I'm battling, and so I'm not perfect yet. So here's where the next theological word you may have heard it before is called sanctification. Reach over, touch your neighbor, and tell them sanctification. Tell them you look sanctified today. 
I used to have a good friend, Hamal Strayhorn. He used to say, I'm looking for a girl who is saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Ghost. And that's the only one I'm marrying. And uh, saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Ghost. But there's a lie in that. Sanctified as if it had been accomplished already. See, sanctification, listen to me now, stay with me. It's the process. It's the process until the day of Jesus Christ of God working out all the sin in me. He's put His Holy Spirit inside of me. It's the process of me becoming more like Jesus every single day until the day of Jesus Christ. It's not like I'm sanctified. All right, I'm sanctified. I'm good. I'm now perfect. Because guess what? If you were perfect, you wouldn't be here right now. Right? And so in case in case you... Thank you, Caleb. All right. In case you just got thinking you you were a little bit better than somebody else, in case you got thinking you were perfect, you would not be here right now. And so it is the process. Sanctification is the process, the daily process of becoming more like Christ over time. And it won't be complete until the day of Christ Jesus. Amen. So it's a process. He who began a good work and you will carry it on. What does this have to do with parenting? What does that have to do with dealing with people? Well, let me explain it to you like this. In fact, there's a book our community group's been reading by Paul Tripp. It's called 14 uh, Gospel Principles for Parenting. I just want to read to you a passage here where he illustrates this so beautifully. He says this, We all want it, and none of us ever get it. It can be so frustrating at times. You would love to have it just once, but it seems to evade you every time. As a parent, you probably don't consciously think about it much, but the desire is there in your heart, and it stimulates in you much impatience and much disappointment. We all tend to think that we have the power to produce it in others, but we don't. What am I talking about? We think the things we say or the things we do or the punishment we give or our voice rising and our eyes popping, our veins bulging will create change in someone else. Here's what I'm talking about. We want parenting to be a series of events rather than a lifelong process. Listen to me now. We want parenting to be a series of events rather than a lifelong process. So in moments of discipline, we get loaded for bear. We are ready to give them all we got. So we make our threats big enough. We make sure we are loud enough. We make sure we are stern enough. We get cranked up emotionally to to manipulate them with some tears. And we will win and our children will instantly change. We'll have instant kids. I have had parent after parent say something like this to me. Paul, I've tried everything you've suggested, and it still hasn't worked. And he says, my question to them is this. How do you know? Because your kids are in a process of change. He says, so let me give you a couple examples. Your four-year-old son just hit his two-year-old sister. And you would you say, why would you do such a thing? Now, what you want him to say to you is this. I hit her because in my heart there is sin. It makes me selfish, jealous, and violent. I am a person who needs to be rescued from myself, Mom. You know, Mom, the greatest danger to me lives inside of me, not outside of me. And for that, I need a Savior. That's what we want our kids to say. We want them to acknowledge they're wrong, want them to get it, and then we want to move on with our lives, right? I don't want to have to take the time to be a part of this process of molding you and shaping you. And as many of you who have older children, some of you have children older than me, 
you can testify, it's a work in progress. And being patient with them is a big deal. And so, here's what you say to him. He's hit her 70 times before, and you've had this conversation 70 times before, and you're tired of having it, right? You just want him to confess and seek help for once. Couldn't it all just happen in one conversation? Can't you just get it this one time? I told you don't talk back to your teacher. I told you to do your homework. I told you to not do this, right? We just want it to happen one time. But then you know what happens? Instead, they give you answers, right? They say, well, I hit her because she always takes my stuff. And I tell her not to, but she won't listen to me. Why don't you yell at her for not listening? Right? They activate their inner lawyers. And at that point, you're very discouraged, and you can feel yourself losing it. Or here's another scenario. It's 12.25 a.m., and the teenager whom you told to be in by midnight and who promised that she would be home by midnight is not home yet. Although she has a cell phone, she has not called, and you're sitting in the living room staring at the front door, cell phone in your hand, and steaming. Suddenly, you hear the car pull into the driveway. Screech to a halt. In seconds, the door bursts open. You've been in the scene several times with her. She's told you she hates her curfew, but that she'll try to do better. She always acts irritated when you remind her once again that she is supposed to be in by midnight. You don't want to hear her catalog of quasi-creative excuses. You don't want her to tell you again that a few minutes late doesn't really make any difference. At least she's not out drinking or taking drugs. The conversation you wanted to have is now turning out differently. You wanted her to acknowledge her irresponsibility. That's what's happening in your heart. You want her to quit shifting the blame. And you want her to own her need for help, right? But once again, it's not going to happen. And so you tell her to go to bed. (laughs) And you'll talk about it in the morning. And you go to bed discouraged, wondering why you have to go through this scene again. And again and again. Amen. And then he says this. Here the gospel of Jesus Christ provides the ultimate model of what God has called us to as people and as parents. Think about this. Think about how God the Father works change in our lives as his children. Because of the complete work of Jesus, we are welcomed into God's family with all the rights and privileges of being his children. We have been fully justified and completely accepted. But we are not complete yet. Because there is a massive change that needs to take place in our hearts. So the power of sin has been broken in us, but the presence of sin has not left us until the day of Christ Jesus. And so he talks through that, and it's this multi-day process, but he says this, Parents, there is your model, Jesus Christ, who loves us and is patient with us. He says parenting is not a series of dramatic confrontation and then confession events but rather a lifelong process of, watch this, incremental awareness and progressive change. The four-year-old will not say after you confront him, I am a self-centered, self-ruling idolater in need of redemption. The middle schooler will not become a fully transformed human being, and the teenager will still need your parenting wisdom. I think the desire for overnight change in us is what gets us into trouble. He goes on to say, it's the day you're leaving for vacation. And you have parented your children all year long. It would be nice if they could give you a break during your vacation. Can I get an amen? 
Now consider what you're wishing for in your heart, right? You're hoping that little sinners who needed so much of your attention and parenting before have been transformed overnight into fully sanctified, self-parenting human beings. But you're not seven-tenths of a mile down the road, and they're already fighting in the back seat. You begin to lose it and threaten to turn around this van and cancel the vacation. You ever been there before? Amen. And what is it? It's in us, this desire, this belief. Oh, I have to tell you this again. Instead of a Christ-like position. You are a sinner who is in need and in process of change. And what you need from me is a patient parent who's going to help you navigate this. I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to give you consequences. I'm going to discipline you. Well, I'm going to do it in a calm and controlled way. Because listen. My job is not to change you. My job is not to make you into anything, right? What if I was trying to like form this plant? Like I want this plant to, to grow this way and that way, right? It would be futile. Now, some of you who are smarter than me, you can say, well, you could tie these things here and blah, blah, blah. Okay, all right? Okay, but trying to control the way something grows is out of our control. But God is the author of change, amen? And he is the one. And so knowing this, knowing verse 6, this, Saying this over your kids, saying this over yourself. You know what? I'm about to lose my mind right now, but I'm just going to prophesy. I'm going to speak over you. Verse six of Philippians chapter one. And I am sure of this. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. I wish it was sooner, but he will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to come down and I'm going to help you because what kids need is they need a parent. And they need a parent who's in control who can help them navigate that. Because isn't that what you and I need when we mess up? How does God the Father treat us when we have blown it? When we lose control? Does God the Father say, It's Mackie again. It's Mackie again. How many times have I told him the speed limit is 55? And he just can't seem to figure it out. <sighs> it's Mackie again. He was harsh with his wife, got a little testy with her. <sighs> I've, t I've told him this. A I've shown him what a gift his wife is. I've shown him how, how grateful he should be to have a wife like Victoria. And here he is, blowing it again. Is that what God does? No, he doesn't huff and puff. He says, I know Mackie's imperfect. He's got a long timeline. And this is just one chink. I'm chiseling away. And I'm just chiseling. This is my opportunity. And every time our kids misbehave, every time they disobey, it's an opportunity for us to take out the chisel and calmly, patiently, lovingly chisel away their imperfections. How do you know it's not working? It is working. It just takes time and it's a process of doing that so point number one is this is that children right or change is a process that requires a patient loving parent and then point number two is this point number two you can write this down it'll be real difficult change is a process that requires a patient and loving parent you say pastor i think uh you you got your points a little wrong here no no it's the same one for a reason, right? Because you need to remember, 
Change is a process that requires a patient and loving parent. It's going to take time. And really, this is for you as an individual, thinking about how God has related to us. Amen? And so as we look back at this text, look with me at verse 7. Look at verse 7. It says this, It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. This is the Apostle Paul talking to them. For you are partakers, what? With me. You are partakers with me of grace. Parents, we have been given forgiveness and patience and grace by God. And you know what our kids need? They need forgiveness and grace and patience. And when we receive that gift and that grace from God, we can now pass it on. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, look, he's saying, you are partakers with me of grace. You have tasted the grace of God. I have tasted the grace of God. And now I get to pass it on to you. And I'm just telling you, as a parent, as a grandparent, you can't do this without Jesus Christ. Amen. You can't do this in your own strength because it will drive you crazy. Kind of the last, uh, actually, I want to share with you a couple other verses here. Think about how God treats us. Psalm 86 says this, Psalm 86, verse 15 says, But you, O Lord, are a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and what? Faithfulness. In fact, that, that scripture is quoted all throughout the Bible. You, O God, are merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's how God has treated us as individuals. We are now called to treat our children that way. And again, if you're single, you are called to treat your coworkers or your spouse or your sibling that way, amen? Could we fill in your name in the blank? Could we say, but you, oh, Daniel, are merciful and gracious. Is that what people who live around me would say? You, oh, Daniel, are merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. My God. One, two, three of my kids in here, right? We can give them a microphone and see if they would testify to that today, right? It put me in the hot seat. My wife could come testify. Are you slow to anger when we're late and trying to get all the kids in the car and get somewhere on time? Are you merciful and gracious? Can you put your name in there as you deal with your coworkers, as you deal with your spouse? Are you this way? Because this is what we've received from God, and He's asking us to pass it down. You've got to be filled with the grace of God. 2 Peter 3.9 says this. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but He is what? Patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Oh, how patient God is with us as sinners, loving, kindly, waiting for us to change calling us to Himself, saying, come to Me, all you who are heavy laden, all you who are burdened, come to Me. This is who God is. He doesn't want us to perish in our sins. And if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Christ, your sins will cause you to perish apart from God, separated for all of eternity. But here's what you need to know. That's not God's heart. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come and repent and turn to Him. God is patiently waiting for you to confess and repent. So I heard a story recently um, about a young man in his uh, senior year of high school. His name was Greg Wittekamper. 
went to high school in Georgia. And instead of the best year of his life, his senior year, it was the worst year of his life. It started at the beginning of the year in 1965. Greg, who was white, went to a school, went to a school with four African American students at Americus High School in Georgia. And a mob pelted his car with rocks and bricks. It was the beginning of what would be a long year for Greg. Throughout Greg's senior year, his classmates spit upon him, dumped food upon him, tore up his books, pushed him down the stairs and attacked him. Several students even urinated in his locker. As far as they were concerned, even though Greg was white, anyone who associated with blacks during that time deserved to be treated the same way they were. Such was the prevailing culture in the 1960s. But see, in 1953, Greg's father had moved him and his family to a place called Koinonia Farm. Koinonia is the Greek word in the Bible for fellowship, for community of sharing one another. This Koinonia Farm was actually the birthplace of Habitat for Humanity. These are people who took the scriptures seriously, and so they lived and worked together, black and white, different ages, different races, different abilities, and they worked together on this farm and supported one another on this farm. But this farm in those days was known as a den of communists and race mixers. At Koinonia, the people were often attacked by the KKK during those turbulent years. Greg remembers seeing their roadside produce stand blown up, bullets, and people would shoot from the road at their farm as the children were playing outside wasn't just the violence and hate that was limited to the farm. Three white families from Koinonia, including Greg's, weren't allowed to send their children to America's high school. The students and parents there didn't even want the white kids from Koinonia mixing in with the other ones. And so after changes in our government, after lawsuits, the laws were changed, and those students, as well as African-American students, were welcomed, at least on paper, at America's high school. But things didn't go over very well. Greg said, the worst part wasn't the name calling. It was being shunned. I wanted to just be like the other kids. I cut my hair like them. I tried to dress like them. I just wanted to be their friend. But no one wanted to be Greg's friend. He was alone, and he was the only Koinonia student left in his graduating class his senior year. The persecution had continued all that year. Other students, including his brother, had left the school. He remembers one time. The students actually invited him to come sit at the lunch table. Greg didn't know how to respond, but he figured he might as well try. Maybe there was change happening in their hearts. And as he sat down, a guy slammed a sloppy joe right into his face and then took his tray and smashed it. Most people couldn't understand why Greg continued to attend that school. He still remembers the sloppy joe incident. When he got home, he saw the pastor, the leader of the Koinonia farm. And in his own emotion, that leader said, man, Greg, this breaks my heart that you're going through this, this nonviolent protest that we and the way we live is different. He says, but I wonder if this is just for us as adults. I wonder if the rules are different for you as a kid. And he said, my leader, the pastor actually said this. I wonder if it's OK for you to take a swing at him next time. And he said, and not to turn the other cheek. Greg was surprised that he was getting permission from his minister to fight back. But he knew the scriptures were clear. And so when another incident Happened, and he was attacked by a football player. The boy kicked the books out of Greg's hand, hit him in the back, and kicked him in the face, but he didn't react as they expected. Instead, he stood there, and he turned the other cheek. 
There was another man who now is a teacher at a high school, and he says, I never forgot that day. He said, because I saw, I saw a sermon that day. A sermon was a change that would happen. Well, Greg finally graduated, and he was booed across the stage when he received his diploma. When the ceremony was over, he was chased off the school grounds with rocks. But Greg never forgot one graduate who shook his head that day and told him, I don't see how you made it through. And Greg said, that one small act gave me a glimmer of hope. Well, fast forward 40 years, and Greg was sent a letter by one of his classmates inviting him back to the 40-year classroom How do you think Greg responded? He was suspicious at first. He was wondering how would things go. He was wondering if it was true. He was wondering could this be legit or did they have something sinister planned. He had gone on to do well for himself. He got married, had a good job, and was now facing retirement age uh, and, and just was doing great. But all these memories started to flood back and he started to wonder, man, will I go to this 40th class reunion? Then he began to get letters from other classmates. The one was the one I just told you about who asked him. I don't see how you made it through. Another letter began like this. I expect you'll be quite surprised to hear from me. If you remember me at all, it will likely be unpleasant for many reasons, the letter continued. Throughout the last 40 years, I have occasionally thought of you and those dark days as you endured at our hands. As I, made, as I matured, I became more and more ashamed of my actions. I wished I had taken a different stand back then. Another letter came said this from a girl, I will never again say, how could the Holocaust have happened? How could all those quote-unquote Christian people in Poland and Germany have stood by and allowed it to happen? I was there present, and I watched what happened to you over a long period of time, and I never once did one thing to comfort you or to reach out to you. That was a great cruelty. Well, Greg read those letters, and he began convinced that maybe it was safe for him to return. And so the first meeting for that first uh, for that 40-year reunion was at a teacher's house, and um, and they met in her living room. And as he came there, people said, "Man, pack a gun with you, <laughs> bring some protection with you. You don't know what's going to happen." But instead, Greg trusted God, and he walked into that living room, and then he experienced reconciliation with those people as they wept, as they prayed, as they asked for his forgiveness, as they confessed their wrongs. Why am I telling you this? Because change happens over a long period of time. If Greg had been impatient like us and expecting those his peers to change at that right time, the expectation is fine. They needed to change. The truth is still the truth. They were wrong just as wrong could be. But look at how Greg's patient endurance paid off. And the same is true with God. How patient has God been with you and me? Amen. And God is still working on us. And he who began a good work in you and in me will carry it on to completion. And he who began a good work in your children and your grandchildren, and they may be wherever they are right now, and you can continue to proclaim this verse over them. I know God will will do a work in you. And that's between you and him. I've done what I've needed to do, and I come running to the feet of Jesus. Amen. And so what do we do when we mess up? We continue to run to the gospel. We continue to run to a God who has forgiven us and who is patient with us who is kind to us, and we offer that same grace and kindness to others. So we're going to have a time of invitation now, a time to respond, and this is our opportunity just to, God has spoken to us and we respond. Maybe it's loving somebody next to you, there's children next to you, grandchildren next to you, maybe it's a big hug and a kiss, maybe it's a phone call after church, or maybe you need to excuse yourself and make a phone call and call a child or a grandchild, 
Maybe you need to come and pray. Pray for a prodigal son or daughter or grandchild who is on your heart that you are thinking about. Whatever God has called you to respond to. You respond to him. And if, and if you need a relationship with Jesus Christ, you haven't made that step on your spiritual journey to receive his forgiveness, to turn away from your sin, we'd be happy to help you. Myself, some of our deacons will be here. So let's pray together, and then we'll continue to worship. Father, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for the patience of God. Thank you for his great grace and mercy with us, Lord. How kind you have been, how slow to anger, how merciful and gracious you are. God, I thank you that you have been so patient with me, Lord. I often come to you with the same mistakes, with the same sins over and over again. And Lord, I often expect that you'll get rid of me. I often expect that you'll kick me out. But instead, I'm met with the kind, gracious arms of a father who embraces me and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Not because of anything I've done, but because of what Jesus has done. So I pray for all of us, God, whatever our situation is, whatever reconciliation may need to happen in hearts and between family members, between parents and children. And, and I know there are children in here. This message is for them too. They may need to repent and confess to parents their anger, their rebellion. And I pray for those here who don't have a relationship with you. And if that's you, you know that's you. You, you may know of God, you may know about God, but you don't know Him personally. You've never given your life to Him. Maybe you take a few moments even right now at your seat to cry out to God. He knows the condition of your heart, so there's no magic prayers, but I could help offer you a prayer. You can repeat it in your heart there right at your seat. And maybe if that's you, you would pray something like this, just quietly in your heart, repeating these words after me. You would say, Dear Jesus, I admit that I've sinned against you. I know that I've been wrong. I confess that to you now. I believe in you, Jesus. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that you rose from the dead. And I give my life to you right now. I surrender my life to you right now. I give you control, Jesus, of my life. And help me to follow you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, this is our time.